I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 15, but I want to particularly center around verses 8 and 9. But would you, if you're able to, stand with me as we read from God's Word? And I'll pray for us. 2 Corinthians 8, I'm going to read 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. I want to ask for a blessing on your word this morning. Bless this time, Lord, as we study it. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand what you want for us to take from it. I pray, Lord, that you would feed your people, that you would help us to grow up in what we have already been given through your Son, that we would be full, that we would recognize ourselves as rich, and as a result, we would be rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in generosity towards others. So, Lord, help us. Help us. We are very much still people of the world. Um, so please enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, Lord, that we might glorify you in our graces towards others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last time I was here, it was just a couple of days before we left on our trip to Thailand with our students, so I figured I should give you a little bit of a report on the other side of it. We had a, we had a great three weeks in Thailand. It was um, really a, an amazing time, great time. Uh, we, we got the full experience. We landed in Chiang Mai, spent several days in Chiang Mai, second largest city in Thailand. But from there we went to smaller and smaller cities, the smallest of which was this little village of about 5,000 that was an eight and a half mile hike out into the middle of the jungle. It is kind of, if you've ever traveled abroad, it's one of those moments that just hits you as surreal. Like, I think there's something about just our the limits of our physical body that we aren't able to handle that extreme amount of change in that short a time. So there's these, just these moments where you're just like, what on earth is happening? How did I end up here? Why am I taking a shower in a waterfall? What, how does, 
I'm eating dog. Where? Yeah, lots. So obviously, lots of stories. But beautiful country, wonderful people, amazing food. Um, all that was just, yeah, that was amazing. But but I think the other takeaways. One is just a great appreciation of what Thailand presents in terms of challenges for, for missions, for a Christian witness. Uh, learned a lot about um, the background of Buddhism and animism in that country. And I, I think one of the reasons why I think travel is so important is that it helps us to realize that a lot of our preconceptions about what it looks like to minister in the name of the gospel in other contexts needs some heavy uh, revising. Because to preach the gospel to the Buddhist, to preach the gospel to the animist is not simply a matter of starting with sin or Jesus. There's a, there's a lot you need to understand about the ground there before you even get to a lot of those points, or you will be very quickly not heard. But you will come away feeling good about how you presented the gospel to very little effect. Um, so I was very helpful in that sense to just understand more about that, and I, I'd love to talk about it with you afterwards, but, but that was helpful. It was also very eye-opening. We had, we spent a lot of time in the western border of, of Thailand on the border with Burma, um, saw the evidences of a lot of what the Burmese government is doing to the minority peoples in Burma. It's just, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. We spent a lot of time with people from the, the Karen uh, tribes, but, but also some from different tribes and the stories they tell. Even while we were there, there's a fresh arrival of 50 new families on the border that just living in tents on the border, not really knowing where to go, but driven from home by attacks from the government. Um, just devastating stuff there. Poverty, of course, is a huge issue there. One of the ministries that we, we got to spend some time with was Remember New, and, and their burden is to, to be a preventative measure against children who live in places where, where Selling kids into the sex trade is a, a very viable option because they have very few other options. And so they go to these villages, they recognize these conditions and go to these villages and say, we can provide food, shelter, and make sure that they are educated you know, up through high school, if, you know, if you're willing, in order to protect them from the possibility of being, being sold into and, and probably being stuck in the sex trade indefinitely. Um, so tremendous need there. But, but at the same time, just we saw an amazing variety of ways in which God's people are meeting these challenges. Got to spend a good amount of time with Free Burma Rangers. And have any of you seen the movie? They did a, they did a documentary a couple of years ago. Um, I think it's on Amazon still. I highly recommend it. Really good movie. This is a people uh, started by a man who came out of the Army Rangers from Texas. His dad was a missionary actually in some of the villages where we were staying for a few days. Um, went back to Thailand um, and with his training, saw it as an opportunity to go into Burma, uh, not always officially, to provide medical care, but also to develop a train medical people or train people in medical skills, you know, among the Burmese people, as well as to document and then file by satellite reports to, to global news agencies about what's going on there with the government. So trying to bring light to it. And in the video, in the movie, you also see that because of their work in Burma, they've also done work in Syria and, and in, they were in, um, where were they? They were, I'm, they were in Syria or no, they went back to Iraq, I think this time while we were there uh, to help over there. But they doing a valuable work, putting their lives at risk all the time um, and seeing up front the horrors of war and the horrors of what governments 
wicked governments will do to their people. Um, but bringing a much needed uh, aid there. Remember New, of course, Outpour and Mesot. Um, they have a kids ministry. They built a, a coffee shop and a sewing business that they've handed over to Thai women in that community to run and, and reap a profit from. And they're now, they have a nine acre property that they showed us that they're hoping to build uh, basically dorms for kids who are being orphaned by the war in Burma, but also, but not as an orphanage, but as a, a midway point to then help connect them either with foster families or reunite them with their, their, their real families. Um, there's just all sorts of different ways that if, if our conception is only, is the gospel being preached? The answer is yes, but maybe not in the way that you expect, or maybe not up front, or it's not, it's not the first thing they're doing, but it's part of a much larger work that they're doing that I, I think is, is wonderful and appropriate for the kinds of needs that are over there. Um, but super encouraging that way. Compassion International, we saw a couple places where Compassion International kids uh, were being remarkably loved and cared for by, by the leaders and churches in those areas. Um, so really encouraging that way. Uh, and then lastly, and it ties into this passage this morning, this is incredible hospitality. I don't know if, again, I don't know if you, how many of you have had the opportunity to travel, especially to third world countries, developing world countries, but I think one of, the, one of the strangest experiences and hardest experiences to go through is when, when you meet and, and get to know people in these different places and they open up their homes and their tables and their lives to you in a way that is profoundly uncomfortable. Not, not in an awkward sense, but, but the, the degree of generosity and warmth and service is is just poured out in a way that is incredibly uncomfortable. It goes against everything I was raised as a, as a good Christian boy to accept. But wonderful and lovely and challenging in so many different ways as well. And, and so much of it reminds me of what, what Paul has to say this morning, particularly about these people in Macedonia, but I think there's something important here for us as well. So, yeah, I've got pictures. If you want to see the big centipedes and all that, I'm happy to show you afterwards. Um, There's some of those. It's like that big. Just crazy. But, yeah, wonderful time. All right, so getting into our passage this morning, um, back to 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, Paul here is, is in the middle of a fundraising campaign for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had gone through a, a famine. You see signs of that back in, in Acts chapter 11, where it was actually predicted. So Paul has been working his way through all these places where he had formerly been, appealing to them for, for money to help the church there. Corinth was one of his last stops before he was going to head to Jerusalem with what he had, he had received. And, and you can kind of infer from what Paul says in different places, but you can also just look at, at history and see that Corinth, out of all these different cities that Paul traveled to, Corinth was kind of the jewel the crowning city, very wealthy city for a number of reasons. It was a, it was a provincial capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a major transportation and, and trade hub. It, it stands on the crossroads between a, a major land route and a major waterway, a canal that cuts right through the middle, just intersects almost right in the middle of the city. So tremendous amount of wealth coming through that area, important educational area, as well as an important religious center. The Temple of Aphrodite was there. So it was, it was really a hub city in so many, so many ways, and just an incredibly wealthy city. 
um, that the gospel had gone out, and out of that a church was born. And you can see in how Paul writes, or sense in how Paul writes, that he really had high hopes for the Corinthians. He, he, was, he was really hopeful that the Corinthians would come through for him. I know, I know what I'm asking, but I know you're going to do it. But what, what's interesting about how Paul makes his appeal is, is what he says here. He says two things that, that stand out in this passage. And the first, and this is, this is where the challenge is, because we've been, we've been raised as Christians, we've been raised with the gospel, we've been raised with the Bible, so this is, these are familiar words. But to take a step back and think about what Paul is saying here is just a wonderful rephrasing of the gospel. He who became rich became poor for he who was rich became poor for your sake so that you by his poverty might become rich that's a beautiful and completely unexpected way to retell the gospel kind of i mean if you want to be cynical kind of manipulative because he's he's going towards a point but but, but he's showing an understanding of the gospel that pertains to what he's asking the corinthians do you understand the gospel in terms of how it affects your generosity, your ability to give to others? That he who is rich became poor for your sake, so you by your poverty might become rich. I want to unpack that a little bit in the time that we have. He who is rich became poor for our sake. You can hear in this the echo of Philippians 2, can't you? Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, emptied himself. That is at the heart of the Christmas celebration, right? It's not just this baby that, of course, everybody loves babies, but it's what that baby was, who that baby was. But how do you get your head around that? 2,000 years later, after hearing this, how do you get your head around the fact that that is God in flesh lying in the major? How, how do you comfortably answer all the questions? Where did this baby come from and how do you understand it? What is it doing here? Why this way, God? This is, I, I love, I've talked about this distinction that Luther makes before between uh, the gospel of glory and the gospel of the cross. This is the beginning point of just that, that unwise wisdom of God that just simply does not make sense. You cannot make this stuff up. But if we conceived of God as the way we think God ought to appear, there's no way he'd be born in Bethlehem. There's, there's no way we would even come up with that, let alone in human flesh, right? He'd just stay from on high in all of his you know, gloriness and right all the wrongs and be done with. And so we have this baby, this, this emblem of complete weakness, Nothing. Left everything behind for our sake. He became like us. And he took our place. This is what we're celebrating this time of year. That, that remarkable gift that God gave. The, the, the incomprehensible sacrifice. Why this way? Why like this? Why so painful? Why so weak? It doesn't make sense. And yet here it is. Here he is. Jesus gave all of that up for our sake. And the second part of that phrase, that we who are poor might become rich 
Now, in saying, in talking about us being in poverty, he's not simply talking about the sense in which we don't have anything. That would be easy. But you know, with Paul, that also has the component of we also don't deserve anything. Jesus didn't just come to meet a need that we were looking for him to solve. He came to meet a need that his enemies had. Who didn't want him, who didn't deserve him, who were dead by rights. He made us, who were in that poverty, by his act of emptying himself, he made us rich. He didn't just meet that need, moreover, but he made it so that we would never need again. That's a hard one to remember for me. Even living in a country like I do, even living, growing up in a place, again, of such prosperity, such comfort of insurance and the like, it's easy to forget that he has met every need, isn't it? And yet he has. But it's the act of making us, who are poor, rich, that is the picture of grace. It's not that we needed it so badly, but we didn't deserve it, and yet he gave it. That, that is also, it's also the heart of giving, the heart of generosity, the heart of hospitality that, that, that needs to be there. Otherwise, it's not really any of those things. It's not that giving to the deserving, it's the giving to the undeserving. Which is, I think, why as we read this, we need to be mindful of the fact that Paul, in laying it out this way, he who is rich became poor for our sake, that we who are poor might become rich, he is laying out not just a principle, but a pattern in which we are to follow. That's, that's the implication here. Corinthians, remember what Christ did for you. I'm appealing to you on that foundation so that you would do that for Jerusalem. You're rich. You have much. You have an abundance. Think of what Christ has given you. Think of what needs Christ has met for you, how he has given you above what you need. Can you not open your heart towards others? I know you can. But he also brings into this at the end of this passage in, in verse, uh, verse 15, this principle of fairness or, equality, or equity. Paul quotes here from Exodus 16, a passage having to do with the gathering of manna, He's, which describes whatever everyone gathered turned out providentially to be enough for the needs of that particular household. Isn't that wonderful? But Paul is saying that there's something more going on there. He's using it not in a descriptive way, that everyone got what they needed in the end, but in a proscriptive way. You ought to give out of your abundance to those who don't have enough so that everyone has enough. But notice also in this that he's not just simply talking about what we do, but what we want, what we desire. The generosity of Jesus in emptying himself and making us rich is meant to make us generous. We're not simply to do what he did, but to feel, to want what he wanted for others. Generosity is meant to make us generous. He gave in order to make us givers. And that is not I mean, with all due respect to, to how I, I believe and I know that, that we as Americans are very generous in lots of different ways. But we're generous in specific ways and not so much in other ways. We're generous with money, 
With time, hmm, that's tough because time's valuable, right? Money's easy to write a check for, do an automatic deposit. Time is costly. Sharing our lives, uh, disrupting our schedules, that's, that's a different order. I'll come back to the thought in a little bit. But he gave in order to make us givers. So we look at that as we consider the birth of Christ. The gift of God to us is meant to transform us. That we want to be, we want others to have what we have. We want others to be enriched as we've been enriched. And if it's through me that that's done, praise the Lord. That's the principle that he. That's the principle that he builds on. But that's not where he stops. And again, if you're, if you're of more of a cynical nature, this is Paul being manipulative again, but he's doing it in a way that, that is godly. Consider your Macedonian brothers. Look at them. So we, we went to them. Macedonia is not wealthy, guys. Macedonia is not doing well financially. They don't have the resources. Moreover, they have been hard hit. It's been a painful season for them. They have not had much. Not just poverty, but suffering. And in spite of this, the Macedonians responded to Paul's request with surprising gusto. They begged Paul for the opportunity to contribute. They didn't want to miss out on the fellowship of generosity. It's an interesting word there, but it's, it's, it's not just giving. We don't just want to give, but we want, to be, we want to be part of this. We want to be joined to this effort. We want to be part of those who are giving with others, and we want to also join with the people of Jerusalem as their brothers and sisters. There's a relational aspect to this that's really important here. That's why it can't be just about money or material wealth. Not only did they, they beg for this, but they gave beyond what they could afford. They gave with, at great risk to themselves, at great cost to themselves. They, they considered maybe for a moment that question of, but what will we live on? And then gave. And they gave with abundant joy. They were free to give in a way that didn't just seem compelled. They were looking for the opportunity, and here it was. What else can we do, Paul? Paul's the one who's holding them back. And they turn to Corinthians and say, I mean, look. Look at what they're doing. I can't stop them. You started. What will you do? Will you finish? And this is, to bring us all back to where I began, this is so much what we experienced these last few weeks in Thailand. Why is it, why is it that it seems that people with less seem more willing to give than those who have more? Why is that? I mean, the easy route is to, to point to sinfulness or pride or unbelief and that sort of thing, but that's usually not a helpful way to explore our own hearts. I think there's a, a couple of different factors at play. Some cultural factors, I would say, at, at play here that we aren't maybe aware of, but I think contribute to this. I think one is we want to be good and faithful stewards with what we have, right? How often have we told that? God's blessed us with, with whatever resources he's given, and, and we want to be wise with that. We want to use that well. That's why, we want to be, that's why you're, you're, you're being deliberate about 
hiring a pastor. It's why you probably deliberate about what you support in terms of missions or whatever. Whatever kinds of initiatives, we, we weigh things. We want to do things the best possible way. We want to be efficient and effective. But is it possible that those, that impulse goes too far? Because it's also risk-averse. We, we don't like the thought of giving to something that won't be used well. Because that would somehow reflect on us. Whether we would either be look like we got taken advantage of or we just simply squandered resources. Yeah, it's one factor. I think another factor is we're afraid of putting ourselves in a place of need. We don't like that. Our culture looks down on dependency. That's, that's a symbol of failure to be dependent on other people, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we face with college-age kids all the time. I want to be independent. I don't want to live under my folks' roof. You don't have a job. I don't care. I want to be my own person. I want to make my own decisions. I don't want to be dependent. And we contribute to that. Because we're preached that all the time, aren't we? We make jokes about people who live in their mom's basement. There, there's, there's an element to that that is, I think, right. Don't I mean, so if you live in your parents' basement, you're under warning. But, but I think we draw too easily a line between that and complete failure and shame. It becomes a negative, a different kind of pride that's not as easy to pick up. Or we're afraid to put a putting ourselves in a place of need because there's that nagging question behind of what if God doesn't come through like he promised? What if we put ourselves at risk and he doesn't provide in the way that we want? We pray that way sometimes, don't we? Pray that God will provide and then we take the second job. We pray that God will provide and we bring in reinforcements. We, we come dangerously close to hedging our bets about God. And I can point you to a number of people in different parts of the world who do the exact same thing. Pray to God for healing and go to the witch doctor. What does faith mean? What does it mean to rest in God's hands? Well, it means that sometimes we put ourselves at risk. Not objectively, but in our own experience day to day. But isn't that what faith looks like often. Third, I think a third factor is that we have a hard time empathizing with those in need. You should take care of yourself. Your sound body, reasonably sound mind, you can take care of yourself. Why make yourself a burden on others? I, I feel this. I am, I am, I have a, in my Ethnic heritage, I am a good chunk Norwegian. And, and one of those cultural tendencies is we don't like to trouble other people with our problems. We, we quietly endure. <laughs> How are you doing? Just great. Just fine. Don't want to bother you. That would, be, that would be shameful to acknowledge that because I'd be putting my burdens on you. But I don't think that's just a Norwegian problem. I think there's a lot of us who... who struggle with that. We don't want to admit that we're in need. And so we, we don't know how to live like people in need. 
So we scramble like crazy to make sure that we're well protected and well provided and safe. But that hinders us. It hinders us in a way that people who don't have that lack. Maybe the one thing they actually do lack. Because people who live in poverty have the advantage of living with a survival mentality. They know what it's like to live without. They know what it's like to receive help from others. They know God's daily providence. They, they can pray the Lord's Prayer meaningfully. Give us this day our daily bread. We shop on one, two-week intervals. I'm a guy, forgive my ignorance. But somewhere in there, because we have refrigerators, we can store up, we have money. We don't even have to think about our daily bread. They don't know that. In fact, it affects even their, their view of time. We, we care very much about schedules, and we attach a certain amount of honor and respect to keeping schedules, keeping your commitments in a time sense. For them, for, for people who live in, in third world countries, who live in, in extreme poverty, their view of time and of scheduling is, I, I, of course, want to keep my commitment, but if I meet a friend on the way, I don't know what tomorrow will bring. So I will make time for my friend. I'll make time for my neighbor because in this moment, not knowing what the future holds, this is what's most important. We don't live that way because we don't need to. The answer to that or the solution to that is hard because I can't, I don't think it's the right course of action is not to therefore go empty all of our bank accounts. I think it's to humble ourselves and learn from those in need as our superiors in this matter. Because they know what hospitality is. They know what it is to give generously and freely in a way that maybe we can never completely understand. But, but we need to. He who was rich became poor for our sake that we by his poverty, might become rich so that we could give to others. So what do we do with this? Well, it just so happens, yesterday I was, I was listening to um, an interview with Brian Fickert um, about his book, When Helping Hurts. And if you haven't read that book, I get no money out of this. And in one of the most important books you can read, not just on missions, but on how you understand generosity in, in, in the main. Because it is not simply about our money. I, I think he rightly critiques the, the materialistic way in which we look at giving. And we, we really undervalue, if completely removed, the relational component. We need to give of ourselves, not our money. Or better, we need to give ourselves and our other resources. That's what giving is. Jesus, Jesus didn't just empty his bank account for us. He gave his life. He made time for the people who didn't deserve it. That's what drove his disciples crazy. People mattered to him in a way that was costly, that I, I, I think culturally we protect ourselves from. So, so my challenge to us, first of all, is do, do we recognize in this the demand that places on the whole of our life as we consider what Christ has given us, the great gift of Jesus emptying himself for our sake 
so that we might become rich, that we might have everything, now obliges us to treat those around us in the same way. But, but more importantly, how do we better capture the spirit of what Paul's after here? And again, I would say, look, look to the Macedonians. Look to the Thai. Look to the Zambians. Look to the Nicaraguans. Look to the people who understand hospitality is what's ours is yours. You go first. We love this. This is meaningful to us to share our homes. It is an honor for us to give you all. Don't worry about us. And find joy in that. Beg for the opportunities to do that. Compete with each other over giving more than the other in that way. A healthy, godly rivalry to give. Imagine what God's church would look like. Imagine, imagine the testimony of that to people around us. It looks as though money doesn't matter to them anymore. Praise the Lord! Look, look how freely they love. Look how much they give of their time. Look at how they, they not only buy, what, kind of, what choices they make in terms of houses they buy, cars they buy, but the architecture of their houses, the architecture of their churches. It's all about giving, not protecting. Imagine what that would look like. This, this again, I, I know I keep coming back to Romans 12 at some point in each of my sermons with you, but I think it's just so important because it's just this undercurrent, I think, through all the New Testament. The challenge here is that we don't think rightly. We think worldly. We think in terms of protecting and preserving and surviving rather than realizing we have everything we need. Remember what Jesus said in Luke's gospel about not being anxious. Your Father's given you the kingdom. Sell all you have. Give it all away. You've got everything you need. Peter appeals to us on the behalf of the great and precious promises that God has given us. They are not yet to be given. They are ours now. So we don't need to be afraid about anything. We're free from all that. Free to give. Free to empty ourselves out. Free to model the generosity of our Savior. And that is, well, I mean, I mean Jesus himself said, and we experience it in, in, in small measures at Christmas time the blessing of giving rather than receiving. It's almost as though God made us to experience giving in a much more joyous way than simply getting. Huh. I think he meant something there. We're even wired that way. So as we, we enter this season, as we, we consider this magnificent, incomprehensible graciousness of God towards us, that we would pray that God would so transform us that we would mirror the generosity of Christ. Not, not just the actions, but the heart of that. That we would see what we have been given differently. That we would hold it less tightly. That, that we would desire more to give than to receive. Because we have been given everything. We're rich. We're rich beyond measure. We have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you 
for all that you have done. Not just for us, but this wonderful work that you've done throughout the course of human history. This this incredible story that, that the birth of Christ is an important, but just a part of a much larger narrative of your your strange desire to want to redeem, restore, reconcile a fallen creation that doesn't deserve it, of which we are a part. Who are we that you would notice us? Who are we that you would die for us? This doesn't make sense. And yet here we are. And you not only say, look at it, but take, receive, it's yours. Lord, enlarge, enlarge our minds, enlarge our hearts to take in the vast grace that you have poured out on each of us, that it would transform us, that we would no longer be afraid, but full and ready to give. Lord, help us. This is a great, one of the great works that needs to happen in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed transformed by your gospel, transformed by the example of those around us, or that we would humbly but sincerely empty ourselves for sake of others and for the sake of your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.